0: welcome everybody back Steve Cunningham with Michael Grainy again on communism we're doing episode three the return of the Jedi no just the putting the socialist spin and may the farce be with you yeah <laughs> I'll get somebody yelling at me because I said a Star Wars reference but hey
1: it's line up <laughs> hey, I actually prefer the Flash Gordon serials that the Star Wars epic was a rip off of. <laughs> but, uh, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, back to the past here instead of to the future. Uh, getting back to Rerum Novarum. In our last exciting episode, we closed with the issuance of Rerum Novarum and not unexpectedly, it threw the socialists into a panic. You know, eight, May 15th, 1891 is like a black letter day uh in socialist history because that's when rerum novarum came out the official title original title was on the condition of labor uh today you'll if you go to the vatican website and get the official translation to english it will say on labor and capital but the uh it's like rerum novarum new things which is a a, a, a reiteration of what gregory the 16th called this stuff back in 1834 that's like the filing title. It's it's like the first couple words of the encyclical. So that's what you call it for filing purposes. The real title is on the condition of labor or on labor and capital. Excuse me. Now, it was not the first social encyclical. Many people think that it was and date Catholic social teaching from that time. But It was an important encyclical, possibly the most important social encyclical up to that time because of one thing. The socialists had been proposing their programs for decades, ever since the the early 19th century. If you do this, life will be perfect. We will establish the kingdom of God on earth. It will be utopia. It will be the the worker's paradise, whatever you want to call it. Uh, It will be a return to the true Christianity and keep these terms in mind, because it it will be a new age for mankind. By the way, did you know that the age of Aquarius started in 1831 with the birth of Cyrus Reed Teed? We'll get also known as Koresh. That's another episode. (laughs) Uh, Sorry about the digression. But what Rerum Novarum did, it didn't merely condemn socialism, which it did, if you read it you'll see how many times socialism condemned in just the first five paragraphs it set out a positive program and that was unusual every single encyclical prior to that time you know while instructive useful and valuable it just condemned it didn't it's told you what not to do it didn't suggest what to do and that's important It was also extremely dangerous, because as you've probably found out yourself, there is a very strong tendency, especially among Catholics, who misunderstand the doctrine of infallibility to confuse doctrine and discipline, or they confuse the principle with the application of the principle. So that, in other words, thou shalt not kill. is an application of the natural law you know right to life but you know i understand that the original hebrew and i of course speak no words of hebrew other than the shema which i had to learn for music uh is that thou shalt not murder so not all killing another human being is murder but as to whether it is is a matter of human judgment sometimes we don't know And the problem among Catholics especially is to think that every word the Pope speaks is infallible. Well, it's not. It's infallible in matters of faith and morals. And here's one of the catches. It's not infallible in matters of science. And theology is a science. It's the queen of sciences, according to the medieval theologians. But it's still a science. So a Pope can actually rule on something in theology and be wrong as long as it's not pure faith and morals. Uh, this actually happened, uh, take an example, in AD 634 with the Monophysite heresy and the Nestorian heresy and fighting it out with the Orthodox. And so somebody came up with the theory of monothelitism. Now, if you ask me what this means, I have no idea. I, I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, what what was the old stories, a traveler, and this actually happened, went to Constantinople and said, you can't find out anything in Constantinople without getting into a theological argument. You ask the way to an inn and you're told that the son is greater than the father. You try to find out the price of bread and you're told that the father is greater than the son. You try to find the way to the store and they will tell you that the father and the son are co-equal in in status and dignity. all I wanted to know was how to get there. <laughs> but what they did was that the Pope, Honorius I, ruled that this that this monothalotism, whatever the heck it is, and don't and I said, don't ask me to describe it, uh, was orthodox and was acceptable. The next Pope said, No, it isn't, and threw it out. And of course, even honest historians like John Julius Norwich in his history of Byzantium says this calls you know, later definitions of papal infallibility into question. No, it doesn't, because it was a matter of science and, in a sense, personal opinion, because the Pope made a mistake in theology, not in faith and morals. So much for that digression, but it's an important one in this case. Uh, so, You can bring think of John twenty
0: second with his idea of uh, the dead does not uh, see... The beatific vision until the final judgment, and he was wrong. All he,
1: he recanted on his deathbed. Yeah, that was John the Twenty Second, mm-hmm. and but so he was wrong. Big deal. It's not a matter of faith or morals. That was a matter of science. Even though people will tell you that it, I mean, theology is a science. Well, the theologians call it one. Uh, of course, I also have people saying the economics is not a science. I thought, well, then what is it? But uh, anyway, um, as I said, the socialists went into a panic on this thing because Rerum Navarum actually gave a specific program, which meant that they had to get to work trying to explain it away or counter it or hijack it or do something. So what you had was a massive, often you know, just deliberate confusion between principle and application of the principle. And this was done you know, by virtually all the commentators. I don't think hardly anyone really understood the encyclical. I think Archbishop John Ireland of uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, probably came closer than most other people, but even he wasn't quite right on the mark because Rerum Navarro was just too different. Uh, And Archbishop Ireland is a subject for another whole show in the future. (laughs) I mean, my... My non-Christian associate, he can't believe the stuff I'm digging up. And he says, oh, you know, I may not be a Christian, but I can can understand that. And I could go along with that. I said, even if you're not a Christian? Sure. This is all natural law. He has no problem with it. He comes from an Orthodox Jewish tradition. But, I mean, this is the same for everybody. Whether you're Christian, Jewish, Muslim, or take one of the whatevers. As long as you're Aristotelian, of course. Aristotelian Thomist, Aristotelian Maimonidean, Aristotelian and Ibn Khaldun, you know. I really know too much but I that is good for me. <laughs> I know more than is good for me. I mean, anyway, so basically, Rerum Novarum was a defense of natural law against the new things. You know, primarily socialism, a little bit of modern modernism and esotericism, but not very much in there. Primarily, it was socialism, which was the greatest danger at that point, and frankly still is. Uh, So that it really stressed the importance of private property, because socialism summed up, as Karl Marx said, is the abolition of private property, and I I think we explained why that's important in a previous episode, so I won't get back into that, explaining why private property is the right, not the thing that's owned. Uh, So that right in the very beginning of rerum novarum and now i got to see if i can read my own writing here it's uh he declared flat out it is surely undeniable that when a man engages engages in remunerative <laughs> I, knew I was going to do this in remunerative labor the impelling reason and motive of his work is to obtain property and thereafter to hold it as his very own that's in section 5 of rerum novarum right up front and if you think I can't pronounce English, wait, wait till I discuss the very first social encyclical and try to pronounce all the Polish names. I'm gonna need a tutorial of two weeks just to be able to do that. <laughs> anyway, the uh, the central, I, I hope you're not, are you a Polish descent? <laughs> I got a friend from Poland, he just kind of shakes his head whenever I try to pronounce this stuff. At least I finally figured out how to pronounce his name. Uh, Okay, the central idea of the encyclical can can be summed up as power follows property. Uh Now remember previously we had said that Daniel Webster used that line in 1820 in the Constitutional Convention of Massachusetts when they were discussing the extension of the voting franchise to adult males who didn't own property. And Daniel Webster was against this. Of course, he proposed, you know, we shouldn't extend the vote to people who don't own property because they won't use it properly rather than do the logical thing that Lewis Kelso did a cent- over a century later and said, well, then make certain that everyone can own property. That way they'll use the vote properly. Don't let them not vote. Don't say you can't vote. Get them property so that they'll use the vote properly. But uh, so the heart of rerum novarum can be summed up in paragraph 46, which is the law We we have seen that this great labor question cannot be solved, save by assuming as a principle that private ownership must be held sacred and inviolable. I pronounced the word correctly. (laughs) The law therefore should favor ownership and its policy should be to induce as many as possible of the people to become owners. Now, right there, I have a problem with a lot of modern commentators and people who quote that section because for some reason, they will change people to workers, which changes the whole meaning of that paragraph. And just to make absolutely certain that the English translation of the Vatican was accurate, I looked at the official Latin. Now I'm not very good at Latin, but I went over that paragraph several times and it does say as many as possible of the people, not as many as possible of the workers. Human labor is not the only thing that creates property. Inheritance is valid. Charity is valid. Uh, you know, being just getting a gift is valid. If labor is the only thing that creates property, then most property people today own isn't valid. And right up at the front of Rero Novarum, Leo Thirteenth made a point of saying that, you know, of course inheritance is valid. Labor is not the only thing that creates property. Fair exchange can. Well, we won't get into the, the law of property here. But okay. Now, there were unfortunately two weaknesses in the program as Leo Thirteenth outlined it. Not in the principle, not in the doctrine, but in the application of it. And what he said was, if a workman's wages be sufficient, he will find it easy to practice thrift and he will not fail to put by some little savings and thus secure a modest source of income." That's also in paragraph 46, right before he says how important private property is for everyone. And right there is where you have people make huge mistakes about the difference between fallibility and infallibility. Right there, the Pope was applying a principle as well as he knew it. Now, Leo Thirteenth, for a change, he did know something about ownership and the need for private property and how to finance, but it was somewhat limited. When he was uh, uh, Bishop Governor of Perugia, before he went on a diplomatic mission to Belgium, he actually started a savings bank and helped capitalize it with his own money. This was so that ordinary people could save their money and afford to purchase a little bit of land or a small business or something to make them independent to increase their income that would not be dependent on somebody else so he knew the importance of you know owning capital now what Pete, what leo the 13th said was pay people more to enable them to buy capital so they can generate non labor income this will enhance their human dignity because it will make them less dependent or even non-dependent on others. What people heard was raise wages so that that because they are the only source of income. I mean, depending on how you read that paragraph, it sounds like oh, you must raise ra- you must raise wages because that's the only thing workers have to live on. Not raise wages so workers can save so that they'll have another source of income. It's all how you read it. And if, even though the Pope was quite explicit, that's not what people were reading. Now that brings in the other problem, or I should say it's not a problem, a weakness in the application of the principles. It's the Pope didn't consider past savings are not the only way to finance new capital acquisition. In fact, they are actually the worst way to finance capital acquisition. There are two ways to to finance capital. One, cut consumption in the past, accumulate money savings, and then purchase the capital. The other way, and this is the way most new capital is financed, especially during periods of rapid growth, is don't cut consumption, increase production in the future mm-hmm. and you can actually monetize this through a bill of exchange and take it to the commercial bank we won't get into that this is not a course in finance although it should be I, I, and I can switch to that if you like okay now this is this illustrates the difference between you know, the social doctrine which is infallible and the social program which is fallible uh, another one that popped up in *Rerum Novarum* was, oh, that's the—that's not only the living wage encyclical, which it isn't. It's the anti anti-socialist. Here's a better way encyclical. It's that, oh, that's where the Pope endorsed labor unions. Not exactly. Uh, the thing is that Catholic labor union is and he referenced the medieval guilds and he used the, and people said, Oh, you mean Catholic labor unions? Well, that's not what a guild was. A labor union is generally construed as non owning workers getting, you know, people power to organize and bargain for better wages and benefits. A guild was an association of owners. If you weren't an owner, you couldn't be a guildsman. You might be a journeyman and you might be an apprentice, but you weren't a a full member of the guild. And the Pope was using labor unions as an example of organized social action, not as an endorsement of labor unions per se. And so the, the whole idea that, oh, well, what we need to do is restart the guild movement as Catholic labor unions which is not what he was talking about. Uh, the whole thing was was kind of a made-up mythology of what a labor union is and what a guild was and should be. Uh, the What the Pope was stressing, if you read that portion of Rerum Novarum very carefully, and, of course, you have to read the, the, the encyclical very carefully, it was over four and a half years in preparation. It was not a casually written or carelessly written document every word was scrutinized over and over and what if you look at it the pope was talking about the social role and the political role and you know of guilds not just the economic role and he was using labor unions as an example but he was also talking more about societies for mutual help you know things for like help widows and orphans help achieve social benefits uh and most people have taken that's the section on the on when he mentioned labor unions and the guilds as justified an increased role for the state. No, a decreased role for the state, because earlier at the beginning of the encyclical, he said, you know, the state is trying to do too much. Now we need to take the state out of things, not increase its role. There is a legitimate role for the state, but it's not supposed to run every aspect of your life. So that what he was talking about so it was sort of presaging, you know, what Pius XI would call the act of social justice, which we'll get into that later, because it's, a, it's very complicated if you are thinking only in individualistic terms or collectivistic terms. It's something different. But at the heart of social virtue, particularly social justice, is organization for the benefit of the common good. Not individual good, the common good. And this is actually, uh, I would not be surprised if Leo XIII had read Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. It's almost a virtual certainty that Pius IX did. But I would not be surprised if Leo XIII did. And basically, what at, at the heart of de Tocqueville's argument, at least in part of the book, was the role of association, you know, a free association in American life. Where other people, where where in England, for example, people expect the great man to do something. And in France, people expected the government to do something. In the United States, at least in the 1830s when the Tocqueville visited, people did it for themselves. If someone couldn't do it alone, he organized with others and got the job done. So that de Tocqueville actually concluded that, well, in America, the central government can hardly be said to function at all because people are doing what other countries expect the government or the aristocracy to do. So as de Tocqueville concluded, he says, the people reign in the American political world as the deity does in the universe. They are the cause and the aim of all things. Everything comes from them and everything is absorbed in them. And he didn't mean, you know, collectivism. What he meant was that individuals join with other individuals, form associations, and do the job that other people expect the state or the great ones to do. It's the people doing it. Mm-hmm. I, even saying the people nowadays means the collective, But I, so I should say people doing it, not the people. <laughs> you have to humanize. <laughs> you have to have respect for human dignity. We use um, collective. <laughs> Basically, that's the way, I mean, what was it, Justice Frankfurter uh, and, and the Beards, of course, were, were saying that the preamble of the Constitution is just a, it's just a meaningless phrase that, that's there to, you know, just to introduce things. William Krosky, the great constitutional scholar that Frankfurter got ticked off at, said no, the preamble sets the tone for the whole document. It tells you what the whole thing's about. Yeah, think- why are we even gathering together so that we, the organized people, can grant rights to the state so it can carry out its business to create a more perfect union, establish justice, you know, the whole. I remember Patrick Henry's
0: uh, thing. Why do why we call it we the people? Why not we the states? He goes in there, a big thing about that.
1: Yeah, it's not the states. Do you know where states, that whole argument about states' rights came from? Preserve slavery. This was William Krosky's contention. And we, that, that's another hole. Of course, his book, two volumes, is this thick. So discussing how the Supreme Court managed to hijack the meaning of the Constitution to serve its own ends, its own end, of course, being the preservation and extension of slavery because of money. Cotton was the single largest export of the United States from 1803 to 1937. So don't tell me people weren't making money off of that. Oh, everybody was. Especially the
0: North, guys. Yes, I, I'm a Southerner. That that The North ships were bringing them in.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, the book, David Christie's Cotton is King. David Christie was a Northerner, former abolitionist. And in Cotton is King, he says, I abhor slavery. I loathe it. It is despicable. But we need it for the money. The entire economic prosperity of the British Empire and the United States depends upon slave cultivation of cotton. Yeah, sure it does. What it means is that depends on slave cultivation of cotton. Uh, another digression. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you ought to have a flag or something that you wave at me and says, okay, stop, detour, turn back. Yeah. Now, the whole thing with, with the association is that uh, de Tocqueville limited it to, you know, the social and the political aspects. Leo XIII actually carried it further, you know, talking about know, the whole fundamental meaning and inherent way of life. Because if you read Rayrum Novarm carefully, especially the part about where he brings in labor unions and associations, you know, societies for mutual help, he's talking about a different way of looking at life than was usual in Europe or even in England. Of course, it was also starting to change in the United States. But that's, as I said, another whole issue. Now, the biggest problem, however, that faced Rerum Novarum, it was that, oh, the Pope is advocating a form of Christian socialism. And this was pretty bad, because uh, you had, and frankly, not a very good form of socialism. Because about a month after Rerum Novarum came out, uh, one newspaper declared, the remedy not clear the socialists and henry george have a plan but leo the 13th has no plan did you actually read it because what he says is you know pay workers more they can save and they can purchase capital become owners this will you know make them more independent it will give them more income it will increase their their, you know their quality of life right after paragraph 46 comes one of the longest passages in the encyclical paragraph 47 which lists all the advantages that will occur that will come about if you know ordinary people can become owners so to say that leo the 13th did not have a plan is uh, was simply untrue and to say that henry george did have a plan well yeah sort of uh george kind of didn't have a plan really have a plan except that the state should tax all profits from land and we'll get to that in a minute as to what was wrong with that and if you've ever read progress in poverty i don't really recommend it but if you have the time you would see that he lists this huge amount of benefits that will come about it will absolutely eliminate unemployment it will encourage growth it will you know cure sickness it will, I almost said something my mother used to say but she was raised on a farm so I can't talk like that <laughs> but i mean leo the 13th said he wasn't going to eliminate unemployment he didn't say he was going to correct all social conditions but henry george was by the simple expedient of taxing of making land private land ownership meaningless Leo Thirteenth was a bit more practical. He said, figure out a way to make people into owners and you'll have a lot of social benefits. It won't be utopia, but it will be a lot better than what you have now. And that can be said even now in 2020. Uh, so that, frankly, it, it was George who was unclear, not, not the Pope. Now, what's interesting is that George got nailed by a Yale University economics professor because he and George, and I can't remember the the, the economist's name, but the economist kept asking him, who's paying the rent that the state is taking in taxation? Well, and George kept saying, the landlord. Well, where is the landlord getting the rent? From the workers? From the people using the land? Oh, no, they get the use for free so that the, the the professor kept saying, but then where does the landlord get it? Oh, he's rich. So, basically what you said is that the landlord collects nothing from for rent, no profits from land, but he still has to pay as if he did. Guess how long that's gonna last? I mean, you mean I don't get, t- get t- get to collect my $500 rent from this piece of property, but I have to pay the government $500. I don't own that anymore, you do. So the bottom line is that that might work once, but after the first time, you're not the state isn't gonna collect any more taxes. The tax base is going to disappear because people are gonna walk away from their land.
0: Mm.
1: Why bother? Okay. so this is where my bad eyesight comes in. Oh, okay. I have to keep track of the points. I'm believe it or not, I do have a plan for this. Now, the encyclical was actually a godsend to Henry George and Father Edward McGlynn. If you remember Father Edward McGlynn from our previous episode, they had fallen out of the of the public eye for quite a while, quite a few years. They weren't news anymore. Well, the moment Rerum Novarum came out, that gave them a chance to get back into the limelight again. Uh, they needed something to get their name back in the papers, and Leo the Thirteenth gave it to them. They, George and McGlynn had actually had a falling out. It was not I couldn't tell from the newspapers what it was that they were fighting about, but it was something, and they refused to speak to each other for a while. Then came Rerum Novarum, and they were suddenly good friends again, because now they could get back in, into the public eye. So George was outraged, or at least he pretended to be. And what he did was he claimed the Pope was after him personally. Rerum Novarum was a plot by Leo XIII to destroy Henry George. Well, yeah, right. Uh, so he wrote an open letter that was on the condition of labor. He, you know, he took the same title as the, as the encyclical, and it was twice as long as the encyclical, and basically, Henry George's argument was that Pope Leo XIII did not understand Catholic t- teaching, and he, Henry George, the non Catholic, did. Which, of course, is nothing new. I mean, everybody knows that the Pope doesn't know anything.
0: Everybody, Everybody's
1: infallible <laughs> but the
0: Pope, and everyone's immaculate except Our Lady. <laughs> you betcha. Uh,
1: unless, of course, you're talking about that guy next to you the, who you're here sucking up to. That land ownership was given to humanity as a whole. And that, of course, is the chief error of socialism, which is, and it's complete nonsense because God doesn't deal in abstractions. And that, well, the easiest way to do that is to explain, you know, very briefly Aquinas' argument on this. I said, when all else fails, go to Aquinas. And you'll find out why Pius XI said that the modernists and the socialists fear no one more than they fear Aquinas, which is why he keeps getting raked over the coals by people today. Because he made sense and he refutes their arguments. So property is a right that God gave to persons, you know, actual human beings, not to humanity. See, in Thomas' philosophy, persons are actualities created by God. God made you. God made me, God made, or as they say, God made the man behind the tree. Uh, Humanity, however, the collective, society, whatever you want to call it, the elite, the capitalists, the socialists, those are abstractions created by human beings for their own purposes. See, God doesn't have to abstract. In fact, God, in a sense, can't abstract because that would contradict his own nature. God is omnipotent. is omniscient that means he's all-powerful and all-knowing for those of you who don't study the baltimore catechism anymore and what that means is that an abstraction is an idea that we put together to say oh you call that a chair and you call that a chair i can see there are two different things but there is something about them that they share a chairness in common i create an abstraction, an idea in my head, this concept that I call chair, or dog, or tree, or even person. And that abstraction it is a way that I can classify things. God doesn't have to do that. God knows everything. He knows that's a chair because that's what it is. He knows that particular grain of sand, that hair on the head that sparrow on the wing he knows it in its complete and total fullness by direct knowledge they call it in aquinas called it practical knowledge abstraction is speculative knowledge in other words we put it together we put together these ideas which could be wrong and they could be right mm-hmm. but they're not completely right which god always is completely right because we don't put everything that exists into that abstraction we couldn't possibly we're not god the only thing that god does not have direct knowledge of is himself this was aquinas's argument as to does god abstract well no because even in his speculative knowledge his knowledge is absolutely perfect see our speculative knowledge is necessarily imperfect because we are imperfect god is perfect his speculative knowledge is perfect. Therefore, the one thing of which he has speculative knowledge, himself, is absolutely perfect and completely indistinguishable from his practical knowledge. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Okay, that will be on the test. (laughs) (laughs) Essay form. So, basically, persons are created by God, abstractions like humanity are created by man. Persons can grant rights, rights to society, which is their own creation, but society cannot grant rights to persons unless they've been granted to them by persons in the first place. So God can't grant rights to the collective directly because that would contradict his nature as a perfect being. It would mean if God granted rights to humanity, that would mean he's imperfect and therefore not God. So it's it's a, it's a contradictory argument it violates the first principle of reason but as i said that will be on the test <laughs> now of course if george was outraged father mcglynn was livid oh he oh he was uh the at first he claimed that you know Raymond novarum was a personal attack on him basically he took george's position and of course he loved to call mass meetings. His favorite place, uh, his favorite venue was the Cooper Union in New York. I think it's still standing. It was built in the 1850s, it was a really nice building, architectural school, everything. But he loved to call meetings there. In fact, Abraham Lincoln gave one of his most famous speeches there in 1860. But as I said, digression time again. Um, and so McGlynn was going out and saying how the Pope was attacking him. And all the people were against him. The Vatican was, you know, they're all against me. They're, you know, they all hate me because I'm right and they're wrong. They don't understand America. They don't understand the Catholic Church. They don't understand Jesus. They don't understand God. You'd think that the Pope was the dumbest man on earth to hear McGlynn talk. Uh, But at the same time, uh, the uh, Archbishop Corrigan and the, the papal nuncio, uh, and his name just slipped out of my head for the moment. But anyway, uh, they kept reiterating time and time and time again, we're willing to talk. We've been trying to get you to talk since we you were excommunicated. Uh, that We are open to talk. We're not condemning you. We wanna resolve this situation. Well, every time they made an overture, McGlynn rejected it, said he was being insulted again or some such thing. Now, remember, he was excommunicated for disobedience because he would not travel to Rome to give his own side of the story after complaining several times that he had not been permitted to give his side of the story. So they said, you are commanded to go to Rome to give your story. Oh, I'm not going. Nothing contradictory there. So that there were only... Two previously, before Raymundo Arm, there had been two conditions for lifting the excommunication. One, apologize to the Pope, Archbishop Corrigan, Cardinal Simeone, that was his name. Cardinal Simeone was the papal—I think he was called the Nuncio at that point—and anyone else he had insulted. And as you know, as you as you've seen, uh, he was quite adept at insult, even though he said he never insulted anybody. Uh, and go to Rome to explain his views on land ownership and the single tax. And of course the, the new one was now accept Rerum Novarum without reservation. At no point did it ever say you must give up your socialist views. All you have to do is apologize, go to Rome and say that you accept Rerum Novarum and the excommunication will be Well, it was becoming rather obvious by this time that McGlynn was the problem, not the Catholic church. Even the secularists and anti-Catholics were saying, "Why are you doing this? We, I mean, their their demands are quite reasonable. We don't believe in the Pope. We don't believe in that Catholic Church. We don't believe in anything else. But what is it that they're asking you to do that's so bad? Well, nothing. That's the problem. So anyway, so McGlynn keeps on calling these mass meetings, and. I, I hate to give these long quotes, but in this case, it's too good to, to pass up. It says, this was from the Hartford Weekly Times, November 29th, 1891, and he's grandstanding like you wouldn't believe. It says, McGlynn, as reported in the newspaper, denied the infallibility of the Pope, criticized the policy, the policy of the Holy See, and said that the Pope was the arch-conspirator conspirator against the liberty and freedom of his country. He called the propaganda, that's the propaganda fide, the propagation of the faith, uh, a lot of ecclesiastical shoemakers instead of bishops, archbishops, cardinals, and popes would mind their own business. The cause of Christianity and Catholicity would be better subserved. Tell us how this you really right feel. After, <laughs> <laughs> Tell us how you really feel, Padre. <laughs> now, I mean, this was right after he said, oh, I never insulted anybody. Sure, you'll make up for it now. <laughs> Let's see how. I got my pages numbered so I don't like, lose my place here. As you can see, with the digressions and my ranting and raving, I, I can lose my place very easily. Okay. McGlynn, then he claimed that Leo the 13th agreed with George. This, this was after this because he kept changing his story. And then he said that instead of Leo the 13th and George, you know, at loggerheads, they were actually in agreement. It was Archbishop Corrigan who was the problem, and so was Simeone. Those two—they were—they were after him. They were insist—they were intent upon crushing him and the American spirit. And so, uh, Corrigan, in essence, according to McGlynn, was actually going against Leo the Thirteenth's order when he excommunicated McGlynn by care and carried out Leo the order to excommunicate him. I mean, makes perfect sense, I guess, if you're a McGlynnite, a Georgite, or a socialist of any other kind. I mean, who needs consistency? Okay, now, but it wasn't limited only to McGlynn and to George and to, you know, a few of the other socialists. One of the leading socialists of the day who considered the leader of the neo-Catholic movement or the new Christian movement in France got into it. And this is where you're going to get me on my French pronunciation again. The guy's name was Marie-Eugène melchior Vicomte de Vogüé. I I think that's how you pronounce it. Close enough. (laughs) Yeah. This guy was a socialist and a modernist. And this is one of the good parts. This is where the New Age comes in. He was heavily influenced by what they put, and put this in quotes, Russian spirituality. This was the sort of thing that a generation or two later, like Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin, you know, Rasputin, the mad monk, was into. Mm-hmm. And if you ask a typical Orthodox, you know, adherent or an Orthodox priest or bishop, you know, hey, what about Rasputin? How soundly was he screwed on? I mean, you know, and they'll just—he—he he was not. He had a good hold over the what was her name? Uh Alexandra, the Empress
0: Alexandra. Yeah, I can't, yeah, I can't think of her name off the top of my head. Yeah, but she was really. Oh,
1: she was into him. Yeah. And then if you ever heard the story of how they finally got rid of him, it's, it is creepy. Yes. You start to think there are people who are
0: possessed. Yeah. Shot multiple times, found frozen. Tied up, clubbed, poisoned. I mean. (laughs) Yeah.
1: The first Terminator. (laughs) Boy, was he. Uh, And anyway, according to the Vogue, I, I, and, I, and again, I hope that's more or less how you pronounce it. It was the failure to adopt socialism that led to the Franco-Prussian War. And then it led to the Paris Commune. Well, the Paris Commune was the was the communists and the, the syndicalists, which were communists or socialists. And if you know anything about what happened during the, the Paris Commune, it, it's enough to make you sick. Uh, And so, but according to Vauguay, it was the failure to adopt socialism that led to socialism during the Paris Commune. Again, don't try to figure this out. Uh, (laughs) Now, as head of the neo-Catholic or new Christian movement in France, and probably pretty much in the world, uh, De Vogue published an article in January 1892 in Harper's New Monthly Magazine. I, is Harper still published? One, I, I think. think so. But no. anyway, it, it, a very reputable magazine. And uh, now, this was in January 1892, and his claim was that Rerum Navarum was actually a socialist manifesto. And Now, I'm going to read this quote, and then we'll analyze it. And it says, If spirits sensitive to the currents of the higher atmosphere seem now to wish, with one accord, to lean back against the real, the right Christianity, the Christianity of Christ, is it not that there exists at this moment a lucid perception that modern democracy is the other half of the gospel of humility and neighborly love preached in Galilee? Everywhere, the world wants a new Christianity. Okay, hand that to virtually any Christian or Catholic today, and they'll say, I don't see anything wrong with that. And superficially, there probably isn't. Well, now let's get into it here. Spirit sensitive to the currents of the higher atmosphere. He's talking about ascended beings here. People who are in connection with with the spirit world, who have raised consciousnesses. Excuse me. <coughs> so there's the New Age bit. Now, the real, the right Christianity, the Christianity of Christ. Well, according to the socialists, only socialism is the true Christianity. There was, as Dr. Julian Strub of Heidelberg University has pointed out several times in his work, there was an obsession in early socialism that with early Christianity, which, of course, they insisted was socialist. And how many times have you heard people claim that since, you know, that one passage in the Acts of the Apostles where they were sharing their goods in common, that proves that the church was communist. I said, yeah, but the preceding and the succeeding passages make it clear that not everybody was doing this. It was only certain people who were doing it as a council of perfection. As does the, uh, you know, the, the story about, you know, the rich young man coming to Jesus and saying, what must I do to gain eternal life? Uh, and Jesus responds, he says, keep the commandments. Mm-hmm. Now, think of the story as it, no, the incident as it went. Jesus, the man says, what must I do to gain eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He didn't add anything, but the, but the rich young man said, oh, this I have done from my youth. What more should I do? And Jesus then says, oh, well, if you want you know to be perfect, Then you must go and sell all you have and give the good to the poor and follow me. Now, if giving up everything you own was required to be saved, then Jesus was a liar. Because the man asked him flat out, what must I do to be saved? And the only answer Jesus gave at that point was, follow the commandments. He didn't say, then go and sell all you have. It's only when the man said, what must I do to be perfect? What more can I do? Oh, well, then you can go sell all that you have. That's today's sermon. (laughs) Uh, So there was this obsession that real Christianity must be socialist. And then now we get to the modern democracy is the other half of that gospel of humility and neighborly love preached in Galilee. Well, what was socialism called first? the democratic religion. It was intended as a replacement for Christianity, especially the Catholic Church. Uh So that when you say modern democracy, you're speaking from, you mean the European or French-style democracy, which is the sovereignty of the collective? You don't mean American-style liberal democracy, which is the sovereignty of the human person, which is what Leo XIII and the popes talked about. You're talking about the collective, So that when you say modern democracy is the other half of the gospel of humility and neighborly love, oh, you mean socialism. So you see, every phrase in this, even a new Christianity, well, that was what Henri de Saint-Simon called socialism, the new Christianity in his 1825 book. So that passage is not quite as innocuous as it sounds, even though it convinced a lot of people that Rerum Novarum was, in fact, a manifesto for socialism. And our next exciting episode, of course, will get even deeper into that because we'll tie in modernism and socialism, I hope. (laughs) Unless I'm assassinated in the meantime. A friend of mine out in Iowa says every time I come out with this stuff, he says, you know, you just painted a target on your back again. They're going to either canonize you or, or, or assassinate you. I said, I think I'll take the former. okay let's see basically you know then according to the socialists raymond novarum was the opposite of what the pope meant and and this was done simply by ignoring explicit passages in the encyclical or changing the meaning of terms and it was so very close and as i said i'm probably squeezing more uh, cramming more quotes into this presentation than to any other one, which I don't like to do, but it's appropriate in this one. I, when I got to this point last night, I said, I have to put in that quote by Chesterton from The Dumb Ox. And it says, it says, one rather queer quality, which has always been the unique note of the faith. I mean, of course, Catholicism says it is the fact that falsehood is never so false as when it is very nearly true. It is when the stab comes near the nerve of truth that the Christian conscience cries out in pain. So by taking a lot of truth that was in the encyclical, agreeing with it, and then slightly changing it just a tiny little bit, you turn it from a just third way that transcends socialism or capitalism and end up with socialism. Uh Or if you're inclined to the private sector, you can end up with capitalism the same way. There really isn't that much difference between socialism and capitalism. In fact, some people call socialism state capitalism. They both have concentrated ownership, whereas, for instance, with Chesterton or with what we're talking about, it's widely distributed ownership. As many as possible, the people should prefer to be, be owners and be provided with the means and opportunity to do so. Uh, of course, whether Chesterton was able to come up with something is another whole issue, which we won't get into today, although it'll be a good one. Anyway, <laughs> due to McGlynn's grandstanding, uh, there, it was basically a stalemate. You had uh, Simeone and Corrigan and long distance the Pope trying to get McGlynn to listen to reason. McGlynn was far more interested in gaining publicity for himself than in actually listening to what people were telling him to do. But after a while, even the public started catching on. You could tell from the newspaper accounts of what was going on that they were getting a little sarcastic with him. They're like, you say that you're in favor of truth, you say that you want to dialogue, you say you want to do this, but you never do it. Well anytime somebody tried to corner McGlynn he started saying how he had been so insulted by Simeone, Cardinal Simeone and Archbishop Corrigan so Leo XIII pulled Simeone out and put in Cardinal Satoli. Cardinal Satoli had spent time in America, he was a good friend of Archbishop Ireland although they had their fights and he had the advantage of being a disinterested party. He had not been insulted by McGlynn the way Simeone had and he seemed to get along with Corrigan. And Corrigan had, as well as McGlynn, had been educated in Rome at the American College. Uh, so to break the stalemate, Leo Thirteenth sent Cardinal Satoli with a special mission. And that was, one, he was under explicit orders from Leo Thirteenth to reconcile McGlynn to the church, if at all possible. I mean... Don't let any insults, don't let anything else stand in the way, just do it. This situation has gone on long enough, and it's getting ridiculous. I mean, even the secular newspapers in the United States were saying how dumb it was. And, of course, part of the problem was McGlynn kept insisting he had been excommunicated for socialism, not for disobedience. I have seen the actual writ of excommunication, the bull of excommunication, and— both latin and in english and it's clear the only thing they mention is disobedience not socialism now it may have been that he was disobedient because of socialism but it was not he was not excommunicated for socialism and mcglynn resisted until it was obvious that he was the problem and not the church but of course he had to grandstand on that too i mean what if you're in this for the publicity what else are you going to do uh so that finally well cutting the long story short here Satoli persuaded mcglynn to apologize and agree to go to rome unfortunately to his apology and submission mcglynn attached a long explanation of his socialist views which of course the examiners took and tossed aside it was irrelevant but of course to mcglynn having accepted the apology To him meant that they accepted his explanation of socialism so that they now the examiners and satoli were now endorsing socialism i said no it was irrelevant so that mcglynn and here's another long quote unfortunately uh finally said the highest authority next to the pope has said our teachings were not antagonistic to the doctrines of our holy religion and we need not retract and we have not retracted we do not repent I will go to Rome if I want to. If I don't want to, I won't. That's an exact quote. Okay, what Satoli had said was that McGlynn's apology did not contain anything antagonistic to the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. McGlynn instantly said, applied that to the appendix that he had attached, which was considered irrelevant by the examiners. So he slightly twisted words there, just to look, just a little bit. Now. uh, Okay. Okay. Don't worry, we're on the home stretch now. (laughs) Uh, There will be no intermission. Uh, Okay, so the, the public caught on Satoli finally got McGlynn to submit. And then McGlynn after giving a few more mass meetings and huge speeches, explain how he was going to Rome of his own free will, and he was never gonna recant no matter what. He would never retract one inch from socialism. And so he went to Rome, Leo XIII interviewed him. Now this is where it gets interesting because the only account we have was McGlynn's of that meeting. And frankly, even in his own account, he didn't come off very well. When in response to direct questions from Leo the Thirteenth, he gave evasive answers. For I I don't I don't have the quote with me. We've had enough quotes already. But basically, uh, to a direct question such as as Do you accept the the authority? You know, do you accept the teaching of the, of the church with respect to private property? And he phrased McGlynn phrased phrases response in such a way as to make it sound that he did accept private property in everything but land, but land, he sort of shoved off to the side and avoided answering because he wouldn't include it in the whole answer. It was, it was the weirdest thing. And this was from McGlynn himself was giving, making himself look bad by this. And so after some more questions, Leo the 13th basically said, well, you know, keep your own opinion. You met the minimum requirements. The ban of excommunication is now lifted. You are, you may now consider yourself a priest in good standing. But at no point was he required to retract socialism. He had met the conditions: apologize and go to Rome. That was the only thing asked of him. And except Ray Varne, of, of course. Now, so McGlynn goes home, and Corrigan refuses to give him a parish assignment. All this time, Corrigan had insisted that in order to be, to have the ban of excommunication lifted, that he must recant socialism. Well, Satoli and Simeone and Leo Thirteenth carefully explained to Corrigan, we can't do that. The reason he was excommunicated was because he was disobedient, not because he was a socialist. So we can't add a condition to lifting ex, the excommunication that had nothing to do with the reason it was imposed. That would be unjust and unfair but that didn't mean that Corrigan had to give McGlynn a parish assignment. So basically, uh, McGlynn refused to recant, Corrigan refused to give him an assignment. And of course, Leo XIII had suggested, would you like to be transferred to some other diocese? Well, there wasn't a bishop in the country or the world who wanted McGlynn in his diocese. He was a troublemaker. Even though they might sympathize with him and several did in print, saying, "You know, it's too bad he was excommunicated. Well, it was his own fault, but they didn't want him in his in their diocese." And so, finally, after years of saying he would never recant, he would never give up. December nineteenth, nineteen 1894, he publicly recanted, and within hours received a parish assignment. I mean, I even found one of the many clippings out of many that, you uh, know, headline, December 19th, 1894, surprise to Catholics, Dr. Edward McGlynn has made a complete recantation. Some years ago, I got into it with some Georgists who worship Father McGlynn, saying that he was the cause of the Catholic Church changing its teachings on private property, and therefore the Catholic Church social The social teachings of the Catholic Church are socialist because it changed him for Father McGlynn. No, the Catholic Church did not change any teachings for him or for anybody else. And McGlynn never recanted. He said he never recanted, and he never did. It was right there in the newspapers. For some strange reason, they didn't come back to me and and say, well, no, no, I take that back. One did, told me that was a fake newspaper. And... (laughs) And this was before fake news became in the news. So a few years later, you know, Henry George ran for mayor of New York City, 1897. And McGlynn kept to the letter of his agreement and did not appear on the platform to endorse George. He stood off to the side and did it and then said he would not take an active role in, in the in the campaign. Well, the real reason was that Corrigan made it pretty clear that if he did, he would lose his parish assignment. Excuse me. Uh, And the day before he died, I think it was in 1900, McGlynn dictated a letter in which he responded to someone that strongly implied that his recantation had been a lie, that he hadn't really meant it. He had only done it in order to get a parish assignment so did mcglynn recant officially yes but he apparently had mental reservations that he never gave up his socialism he, he wanted to have his cake and eat it too now as for henry george and we're, we're closing up now so uh he ran for mayor of new york again in 1897 but something seemed to have gone out of him the 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 high point of his career had been back in june 1887 with that big rally with the irish who he he misplayed that so badly that his star went into you know decline right almost immediately and never really regained it now now, there has always been a hard core of followers of of george but it has never really seized the public imagination the way it did up to June of 1887. But still he got a good campaign going in 1897 to be mayor of New York, which it wasn't really going anywhere. And the reporters cornered uh, George and asked him about his prior statements regarding the Irish. Now, Technically, George had not made any pejorative statements about the Irish, but he had acquiesced in them when they were made by his followers, and he never retracted them or condemned them. Well, it may be that Henry George had suffered a stroke some years before, between 1887 and 1897, and maybe he truly did not remember, or maybe it was just his usual convenient memory in operation. I have scores of incidents where he said one thing when the facts were the other. And he may actually have believed this himself, so I'm, I'm not calling him a liar. Uh, but the reporters started pressing him on what he had said about the Irish 10 years before, and he got so upset that he suffered a second stroke. And a couple of days later, he died right before the, you know, the day before the election. Uh, McGlynn gave the oration at his, uh, at his funeral, which was technically in violation of the word he had given to Corrigan, but Corrigan wasn't going to make an issue of it. He just let it go. And pretty much that was the end of Henry George and of Father McGlynn. It just sort of petered out after George died and McGlynn recanted. Even though 10 years after McGlynn's death, The newspapers were saying that he had never recanted. I mean, I found the newspaper clippings. There's one from 1913, the Alexandria Gazette and Virginia Advertiser, you know, giving the the little story of Father McGlynn and Henry George, and saying that the Catholic Church had changed its teachings for him. Uh, No, that it never happened. But this basically shows the adaptability and the cleverness of the socialists in taking one thing and turning it into another. They managed to take Rerum Novarum, one of the most powerful anti-socialist statements made in the 19th century, which actually presented an alternative, which was not completely workable, but it was in a up, practical up to a point as an alternative to socialism, and they turned it into a socialist manifesto. And as I said before, I'm not making any of this up.
0: Talk about talk about spinning it. <laughs> well, Michael, appreciate it. what's next on the uh, what's the next episode going to be? Uh, you mentioned briefly a little teaser
1: during it. Well, I, I'm thinking mostly, you know, the, the the aftermath from you know the whole the rise of modernism as one of the dangers to the church, which of course is tied in with socialism. I, Chesterton at one point said basically that modernism and socialism are two sides of the same coin and so if you're a modernist you tend very strongly to be a socialist at least in attitude and if you're a socialist you almost have to be a modernist in order to justify it theologically and philosophically
0: i understand look forward to that one mike is appreciated as always
1: okay it's a pleasure we we'll
0: send you all the hate mail to you again is all <laughs>
1: <laughs> just well that, my yeah be sure to send it to j-o-h-n-s-m-i-t-h
0: <laughs> we'll have a <it> link underneath <laughs> take care bud <laughs> okay
1: thanks a lot